0: as I approached him, he said, just loud enough so I could hear, he said, all I want to know is who's going to pay for my crappie.
1: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 22, Paul Shirky, Dog Sledding Expeditions. Hi friends and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Our show today is with Paul Shirky. Paul Shirky leads dog sledding adventures in the Boundary Waters area in northern Minnesota. He also leads Arctic Expeditions, and you too could be a part of that. Paul Shirky first started dog sledding back in his college years, and he has made a business out of this now for over 30 years. Paul, welcome to the program.
0: Yeah, I'm talking to you now from um, the Canadian border of Minnesota, and I'm looking out my window at... uh, One of America's most precious pieces of real estate. It's called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. It's the most popular, most beloved, protected wilderness area in the world. And a quarter million people come here every year to travel by canoe and dog sled and ski and hike Uh, the thousands of lakes that are all still clean enough that you can dip your cup from and drink out of. It's a very special place set aside in perpetuity as a place of natural sights and natural sounds. And... um, and also, it serves the livelihood for our little tiny town of Ely, Minnesota, where there's several dozen folks that uh, own canoe outfitting businesses, and then a few of us that make winter a way of life. And so, um, my wife Sue and our kids in our home here out on the edge of the wilderness in a piece of woods called Wintergreen, because it's carpeted in a wonderful plant called Wintergreen. And um, so, our business adopted the same name both our Dog Sledding Lodge and my wife's line of um, outdoor apparel that is manufactured and distributed right here as well from Ely, Minnesota. So Wintergreen is what we're
1: all about. Wow, I see you have a fantastic URL, dogsledding.com. That's how people can get in touch with you?
0: Yeah, we lucked out. We got in while the getting was good and the URL game way back when. So dogsledding.com um, covers everything we do.
1: Take a moment, if you would, to tell us about dog sledding and about Wintergreen. Well,
0: although I was a late bloomer to the dog sledding game, I didn't jump into the fray until my college years. We've made up for lost time now because we've been in it for 30-some years, and Wintergreen is the oldest and largest uh, recreational dog sledding center, well, in the the Milky Way galaxy as well, certainly the biggest in the U.S. And not that numbers count, but um, we've we've, uh, been involved for a long time, and we love it, and um, so we have a stellar crew of several dozen guides who work here with the Dog setting Program. Obviously, we're seasonal from December through March. Um, and, of course, it's become a way of life for my wife and our three now grown children who are, of course, off and about doing their things around the planet, but they still cycle back. Peter, Bria, and Barrett, our kids, cycle back every winter to guide trips for us. So, um, but luck of the draw for me, um, my segue to the whole world of winter and, and dogs came by way of uh, Connection with the master of the art, a fellow named Will Steger, who is the preeminent contemporary polar explorer of both ends of the world, North and South Poles. And uh, Will uh, hails here from Ely, Minnesota as well, and I got to know him um, many decades back, and he sort of took me under his wings and showed me the ropes of the winter world, and um, also turned me on to a beautiful place, the Arctic. So... Winter Green, while well, it's our family's livelihood and our home, it's also my ticket to ride because it's been our uh, connection to travel to the Arctic.
1: Um, so, Paul, I understand you're getting ready for an Arctic expedition right now. You're headed out here in about a week, right?
0: Yes, we are. We're packing up as we speak. We have gear spread out all over our kitchen floor. Um, headed to a beautiful part of the far north, the Svalbard Islands that lie halfway between Norway and the North Pole in the Barents Sea off the uh, coast of northern Russia. Uh, spectacular spires of granite that rise up out of the Arctic Ocean, and uh, capped in ice caps and glaciers and uh, snowscapes uh, that go on for hundreds of miles and dozens of islands uh, and a host of Arctic wildlife. It's the principal hat for the eastern Arctic uh, polar bears. There's some 3,500 polar bears that call Svalbard home. That's a thousand more bears than there are people there. Um, But there is a sizable little community named after, of all things, a a, a prospector who actually carved out most of his career back here in Minnesota, a guy named John Longyear, who left behind 100 years ago in Svalbard um, its little industry, which is coal mining, of all things, up near the North Pole. His name, the, the village in that island, is called Longyearbyen, the Norwegian word for Longyear town. Uh, about 2,000 folks live there and call the High Arctic home, and they live just 600 miles to the North Pole. Uh, and it's a very happening community with a uh, space age uh, university and an opera hall, an indoor shopping center, um, swimming pools, and uh, lots of young families. And it's, it's one of the most unlikely things you'd ever expect to encounter, but there it is. Um, and then just out the doors of their little village and their home is this magnificent Arctic landscape of ice caps and glaciers that just uh, awaiting adventure travelers like us who uh, go up there to dock
1: Wow, that's neat. So first, how do you get there? You, I assume you're flying in, but...
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's surprisingly uh, easy to access, in part because the economy there is now increasingly driven, uh, with it being the go-to place for European adventure travelers, so there's actually direct jet flights from Oslo, Norway, that take it to Longyearbyen, um, and uh, then off you go, and... They, uh, so thousands of folks. This time of year, this is this uh, is this is peak peak season here right now because the long months of winter darkness have ended. It's round-the-clock sunlight now. Uh, the temps are, by Arctic standards, fairly moderate, and um, they've got uh, a wide array of, of adventure travel options, from kayaking to dog sledding and snowmobiling and ice climbing um, and uh, ice caving and um, uh wildlife tours um, around the perimeters of the island to see the polar bears and the walrus and uh so it, it's it's a pretty amazing place and, and little known to american travelers but it's a big big deal in europe
1: that's fun so how do you prepare for an expedition like this what type of gears uh do you have to pack up you're going to be out there for about a month
0: yeah yeah we'll be gone for a month and about half of the time we'll be actually out on the land in Svalbard and uh, they're doing some other things there but uh yeah, fortunately, the uh, preparing for these arts trips kind of comes with the territory here because we're hitting it hard every day all winter long in Minnesota from, well, early December through end of March. We're out every day, all day with the dog teams and our skis, traveling our own beautiful Boundary Waters wilderness here. Um, so we're pretty well set to jet come spring. <laughs> we're, we're, we're fit and buff and we're into roars, so not a whole lot of physical prep needs to go into that. It just kind of uh, is built into the practice here with our winter uh, events. But, obviously, we've got a specialized set of gear that we're sifting through here right now with um, uh, stoves and tents and, and uh, sleeping systems suitable for traveling in the uh, um, high Arctic. And of course, here in the north woods of Minnesota, the luxury of enjoying beautiful campfires each night around which we can uh, melt snow for our water supply and, and cook meals. But, obviously, in the Arctic, we're using specialized uh, white gas stoves. that are calibrated for use in cold temps um, and um uh, so we're sifting through that right now as well as uh, piecing together our sleeping systems. Um, the nights, even though it's around the clock daylight now, the nights still do dip down, typically below zero. So, of course, our sleeping systems involve specialized super light camping mattresses as well as um, uh, down sleeping bags and then a bivy sack system that turns your sleeping bag into a, a personal tent so you can actually just sleep outside or, or gather in a tent where we We'll enjoy our meals together, but most folks find that um, that from our comfortable sleeping outside, um, not so much under the stars because we'll be in round-the-clock daylight, but outside where the air is cold and dry, inside tents. One of the little bugaboos of winter travel is... uh, Sleeping in tents in the wintertime it may not be all you might think it is because tents get quite clammy um, with all the moisture uh, from your breath and perspiration that uh, collects in the tent as frost and folks opt to sleep outside. In the midi system is like a little personal single-person tent that wraps over your sleeping bag so you can uh, enjoy the cold, dry air and avoid the, the clammy, damp sensation that comes with um, winter tenting.
1: Interesting. You know, most people would think, okay, it's wintertime, I don't want to sleep outside. <laughs> but you're telling yeah. us that that's actually the more comfortable option.
0: Well, that's interesting because we have people, we host folks from, we host about 500 folks here every winter at Wintergreen for our trips here on the home front in northern Minnesota. They come from all over the world. Many of them have never even seen snow before, and of course, this is one of their big life bucket list things to come and do. But you're exactly right. If they've opted to join us on one of our dog sled camping adventures rather than, say, our lodge based dog-fed Well, if they're headed camping, most of them are quite apprehensive about the thought of uh, not being able to huddle inside a tent each night. But curiously, on most every trip all winter long, while most folks high um, tail into the tent the first night, they figure out pretty quick it's a lot more comfortable and actually a lot more beautiful being outside. Well, and, and especially here in northern Minnesota in the winter because the added bonus of sleeping outside is a pretty good chance one of the more magical uh, revelations of the natural world here, and that's, of course, the aurora borealis, the northern lights, which obviously you're not going to get a shot at if you're inside the tent. So I'm sleeping out in the big system. gives you the added bonus of enjoying that spectacle as well.
1: A question about that system. Um, I, I get the idea of a bivy sack and being outside, but my concern is how do you keep your nose and face warm enough to have fresh air and not freeze your nose off at the same time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's sort of a cowl, like a little tunnel around the hood of our sleeping bags that you can adjust with drawstrings to form almost like a little preheat chamber where the air that you're pulling down into the tunnel to breathe through the night is kind of pre-warmed by um, the body heat that's ventilating through that little chimney off the top of your bag. Um, and uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, not 70, it's sunny laying there, it's still cold air you're breathing, but it is pre-warmed. Um, and for folks that find that still a little less than comfortable, they'll pull uh, a neck gaiter or their balaclava up over their nose or over their mouth, so that too will help pre-warm the air that you are inhaling throughout the night. Um, so like most things in life, it's a skill that takes a little adjusting and, and accommodating, but we're we're always gratified to find out how, how complete beginners, even say folks from New Zealand or South Africa or or other southern climes where they've never had a chance to do this before, uh, figured it out pretty fast, and a few nights into the experience there, they um, got it down.
1: So uh, what comfort rating on the sleeping bags do you recommend for that kind of sleeping?
0: Well, we go with overkill. We go with overkill. Um, these bags that we use here are actually rated to 80 below zero. We've never, never, of course, had a chance to test them at that temperature, but because we're traveling by dog team, uh, one of the... Duties of traveling by dog team is you're not frantically uh, trying to shed every last little ounce from your payload. The dogs are very powerful; they're not concerned about a few extra pounds on board those sleds. So, say as compared with a, a winter uh, skier who's traveling with a backpack and every ounce is precious in terms of your comfort and skiing, while your earthly belongings tucked into a pack. When you're traveling by dog team, you have the luxury of enjoying it Well, a couple of wonderful perks. One is um, you can uh, sleeping systems that. Uh, uh, are more than suited for any conditions you'll accommodate, which basically means you're crawling into a big, giant, down comforter every night and you're just kind of swaddled in there with the uh, loft and density of these massive winter sleeping systems. But again, it's a luxury that only traveling by dog setting allows you. You never get that kind of a sleeping system tucked inside to a, a dainty backpack. Well, on The other option that dog setting allows is we're also not... Uh, having to compromise our um, dining pleasure by going with freeze-dried foods, which, although some of them nowadays figured out ways to make them reasonably tasty, is still a far cry from uh, fresh frozen uh, entrees and fresh frozen vegetables. So, again, dog setting allows you that luxury to carry fresh frozen foods and put together uh, uh, pretty fine meals each night uh, and uh, put a little extra polish on on the winter experience.
1: Well, that's nice. You know, the the biggest challenge that I've had on winter trips is that I'm always carrying everything on my back, and it takes more gear in the winter than it does in the summer. Let's face it, and the packs get heavy, and that makes it more difficult to negotiate the snow conditions, and so the dog sled solves that problem.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's pretty pleasant travel out there. Um, although, actually, uh, the dogs that are there to pull our lifeline along behind us, most of us are actually on skis, but not so much our participants, the folks that sign on to join us on these trips. Many of them, of course, are really excited and, and all about uh, being on the backs of those sleds and driving those sleds, and indeed they do. The experience here at Wintergreen is entirely on. The folks that join us are and uh, uh, possible with their own dog team for the duration because they're introduced to their dogs on the day they arrive, and then those dogs are there. It's to care as they choose throughout their stay to water, feed, harness and and uh, drive the sleds and then bed them down at night. Um, and of course, the fun thing is is that uh, the folks that are here with us each winter are all about the dogs. In fact, they seem to have as much they seem to have as much fun just having hang time with the dogs at the kennel or in camp at night as they do actually driving the teams. Um, but the rest of us, including some of the folks that sign on to join us on these trips after travel on skis, um, the dogs that they're plodding along, at a pace that accommodates skiers. We're not setting any ground speed records out there. Our dogs aren't wired to win the Iditarod; These are freighting dogs, and they clip along at three to five, maybe six seven miles an hour. Um, but it's a comfortable pace at which you can ski along with them. And, of course, the beauty of skiing along behind the sled is, uh, well, skiing is a wonderful activity, and plus it uh, keeps your uh, engines idling so you're staying warm out there and keeps you engaged as well. And, um, and then when needed, you can, Pop your skis on the sleds to give the dogs a hand if we're going up over a mountain pass or through a tough portage trail or on tight corners where we need to assist the sled. Um, so it ends up being a combination of both uh, driving the sleds as well as uh, uh, propelling yourself along on skis or if it's deep snow, you might opt for the snowshoes instead.
1: It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, will you tell us a story of an amazing experience that got you hooked on the sport? And take us there. Tell us what it felt like, you know, what the, the smells were and the temperatures and, and all of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, my first Arctic expedition, um, it's actually back in 1984. Well, we had set our sights on trying something big, really big. We were determined somehow some way to put the parts and pieces together to actually dog sled from the north coast of North America all the way to the top of the world to the North Pole. But to make that happen, we knew we had a whole lot of learning to do and a lot of gear to sift through. So we put together a plan for a a, a sizable training expedition, which took us by dog, came from Duluth, Minnesota, all the way across the continent, North America, to the northernmost village uh, in the USA, which is Barrow, Alaska. And to get there from Minnesota (laughs) obliged us to undertake a 5,000-mile, five-month dog sled expedition in the winter of 84. Wow. And um, the, uh, but a huge chunk of that track, we we dog across the Canadian Barrens in the Central Arctic, and then reached the shores of the Arctic Ocean and the Beaufort Sea, and then worked our way down the coast of North America um, towards Alaska. But in '84, there was a curious uh, distraction along the way. It had to do with a little political intrigue back then in the '80s, which. Uh, Concerned the Cold War, of course, there was our kerfuffle, but, you know, this was then Soviet Union at the time, and given those concerns, uh, an odd spin-off of those decades of the Cold War was that every 100 miles along the 2,000-mile coastline of North America, at our taxpayer expense, the U.S. had a listening post. These were called due line stations, due meaning distant early warning system, D-E-W, uh, and so every 100 miles along the entire coast of North America some 60 of these listening posts were set up out there, little concrete bunkers with a radar dome on top, and, and six guys inside were working 24-7 uh, at the uh, computer screens watching for that blip that suggests that the Soviets were winging their way across the Arctic Ocean to bomb us to smithereens. Well, of course, the blip on the screen never happened, um, uh, so it was pretty lonely uh, boring existence for the crews that manned these stations, but then we showed up. We showed up in the winter of 84, so every 100 miles along our dogs and we had the option to dip in for a hot cup of tea and in an attempt at conversation with some uh, uh, pretty strange guys. They'd been out there in the woods too long, out there in the Arctic too long for sure, sitting in those bunkers, but um, uh, but it gave us a distraction, but uh, one of the more curious uh, connections we've ever encountered in the Arctic took place there because at one of those stations, they had a mascot, They had a mascot, which was this uh, feral dog, wild dog, that had shown up one day at the station months back, and they, it was too cagey, uh, too coy for them to handle, but the dog would show up every day at 6, like clockwork, when he could smell the sounds of dinner cooking in the little concrete bunkers, and then would, the dog would patiently wait outside for his turn to leftovers. So we enjoyed uh, watching the same little routine while we stayed with him for a few days as well. At the station, the wild dog that they had called Sam would show up out of the blowing snow in the mist at 6 o'clock every night to get his hand out, and then he'd dart off into the snow, and that was it. Well, as it happened, when we continued on the trail upon leaving that station, some miles down the pipe we realized that that this wild dog was following us. and Of course, we felt bad because we had unwittingly lured the station mascot away from these guys and thought there was no,
1: <laughs> no rhyme or
0: reason to it, no way to tell whether he was going to stick with us or our head back. And So we pushed on. Richard, one of our team members, made a personal mission to try his luck each day at befriending this wild dog. So he would circle back behind the sleds on his skis and try to approach the dog and throw him bits of food and lure him ever closer, and he was making some progress. And then, uh, But the big day came when <clears throat> one day one of our Wheel dogs, that's the dogs that are harnessed to the, closest to the sled. Um, one of our wheel dogs took a tumble and hurt its paws, so we cut him loose to stretch himself off for the day. So there was empty spot, spot on the team near, near the sled. Uh, as the day wore on, we watched in amazement. As Sam, the wild dog, saddled ever closer to that sled, and then all of a sudden... Bingo, he he popped right into the empty spot. He was on a harness tongue clip, but he was running in position. And of course, that then and there told the story because we knew that he was just a long lost dog, probably from a trapper's team on the Yukon River. He was looking for a place in a pack, and now he found it. So uh, Richard redoubled his efforts to befriend him and finally got a hold of him, slipped him into harness, clipped him on the sled. He pulled this abandoned. He was a powerful sled dog. And then to add to the fun, um, the weeks that followed as we continued our way to Barrow, Alaska, Richard popped him into different spots in the sled, from mm. position near the sled to swing positions up in the middle. And then one day, just for fun, he popped him into lead up in the front. And sure enough, he turned out to be a spot on voice command lead dog. You know, he wow. last, off offer right, on by, and on around, and he could do it all. And we steamed into Barrow, Alaska, Triumphant team on May 1st of that year with Sam in lead. And then a few years later, we steamed into the North Pole after an epic two-month trek across the Arctic Ocean, again on May 1st, that year being 1986. And on that day at the top of the world, Sam was in lead position. And then a few years later, my colleague Will and a crew steamed into the South Pole. And believe it or not, on that day, once again, Sam was the lead dog, and on that day at the South Pole, Sam made canine history in a curious way because he then and there became the one and only dog who ever has or ever will be to both ends of the earth.
1: Wow, that's an amazing story. Neat. So Sam, the famous dog. Yeah. What breed was Sam?
0: Well, we think he was what was called a Mackenzie Husky, a rare breed of sled dog that is no more. He might have been the last of the line, but it was a dog that they had bred. The trappers in the Yukon had bred to be quite big, but also quite leggy because of the depth of the snow there. And Sam was was the leggiest dog we'd ever had, so we're guessing he was a Mackenzie Husky from a trapper's team.
1: Wow. Neat story. So Sam found a home, and you guys found an amazing sled dog.
0: Yes, yes, and then he joined us for two very powerful experiences, um, and, uh, of course, that's a big part of the fun here. It always has been. It's all the dogs, these wonderful dogs. The dogs we have here at Wintergreen are um, all a breed called Canadian Inuit. They're the oldest breed of dog in the world, the, most, the dog that's most closely related to the, or, the uh, origins of all dogs, which, of course, is the wolf. We've got 70 purebred Canadian Inuit dogs here in the woods of Ely, Minnesota. Um, but they all hail from the high Arctic, and we've brought the dogs that uh, – are the origins of our line we've brought with, uh, from Eskimo villages throughout the Arctic, from Greenland and Alaska and Canada over over the years to create the wintergreen kennel. So but they're beautiful animals, um, very affectionate, very friendly, um, and extremely powerful. So uh, it's really an honor and a joy to spend the winter with them.
1: So what do they look like? How large are they?
0: Well, you know, most folks nowadays, what, what people tend to know about dog settings what you see on TV at the Editarod. And those are small, sleek speed machines, usually with very light coats um, and very tender feet, because as people may have noticed, those dogs are all booted up to protect their tender foot pads. Um, but the dogs that we use here are more akin to what what you might uh, have seen in old black and white pictures from uh, historic times in the Arctic, particularly the Inuit families with their dog teams, because ours are big, fully-furred dogs, heavy coats, and they come in a beautiful array of colors, from cinnamon, auburn to white, and and, uh, brown and tan, and and often with a variety of markings. And and, uh, they have an inner downy coat, kind of a waxy inner coat that keeps them warm and insulated, and then an outer guard hair, longer guard hair um, that often has a brindled shading to it. that um, blocks the wind and sheds snow so they can stay warm and dry Um, uh, and very very broad powerful chest and an extremely tough seat Um, as mentioned while most racing dogs out there are obliged to be bootied up every day a a racer will go through thousands of booties in a a given race because the dogs blow through them pretty quick but if they an unbooted dog will uh, wear its pads through pretty quick and, and take himself out of the running. But these Inuit dogs are so tough. They no, no problems of any kind and will go for years here without needing any attention. Medical, veterinary care, they're um, just about as rough and tumble as you can get because they've evolved in the high Arctic with one of the world's most resilient cultures, the Inuit culture, the Eskimo culture. Um, and... Uh, so with dogs here wintergreen, it's probably the southernmost uh, kennel of these dogs to be found anywhere because, of course, they're most adapted to cold conditions and don't do too well in, in hot climates. So I don't know if they would, uh, if you could handle a kennel of this kind of dog much, much south of where we are here on the Canadian border in Minnesota.
1: The Kindness Diaries, the new book by Leon Logothetis, the global adventurer, motivational speaker, and philanthropist, is now available. The Kindness Diaries chronicles Leon's travel around the globe fueled only on the kindness of others. Visit www.leonlogothetis.com to learn more about Leon's adventures and look for The Kindness Diaries anywhere books are sold. Hey all you mountain biking enthusiasts out there. Come be a part of the 2015 Cycle Fest Colorado on May 16th. The Cycle Fest is a day of festivities supporting the Colorado High School Cycling League. All of the proceeds go to support cross country mountain biking in Colorado and Wyoming. Special guest Sonia Looney will be there leading an afternoon ride for students and also speaking as a special guest at dinner that night. The dinner is at the American Mountaineering Center in Golden, Colorado, once again, May 16th. You can buy tickets at www.coloradomtb.org. That is Colorado, M is in mountain, T is in trail, B is in bike.org. Come be a part of the fun. Hey, friends. Special request. Please tell all your friends about the Adventure Sports Podcast. Word of mouth is the very best way to get the word out. Also, go to iTunes. Rate us, leave a review, and subscribe. Thank you very much.
2: Um,
1: why would you encourage people to try dog sledding in these winter expeditions?
0: Well, of course, uh, the beauty of the of the activity is, is the dogs themselves, and uh, everyone absolutely falls in love with the dogs here. The other intriguing quality of this of Inuit dogs is they have very very um distinct personalities. So people all glam onto them pretty quick while they're here with us and then they look at that sea of dogs down there in the kennel and wonder how am I ever gonna remember their names and their maids within a day or two given the distinct personalities and the distinct colorations of all the dogs that they've got their names dialed in pretty quick. Um and of course then they become close friends with all of them. So that's a big part of the fun. But the other cool thing about dog setting, uh it's a it's a winter activity it accommodates people of all ages and all backgrounds. We have folks from ages 5 to 85 here every winter, and they all do just great. Uh, and it also accommodates uh, people might be Olympic-caliber athletes, which some folks might assume is required if you're going to be doing some winter backpacking or winter ski poking. Um, but here, most anyone of uh, any level of fitness can enjoy dog setting. And a third key reason um Given the fact that, undeniably, winters seem to be getting wimpier most everywhere these days, uh, dock sitting accommodates marginal winter conditions much more readily than, say, uh, other winter sports. You know, Obviously, most folks look forward to having deep powder to going snow snowmobiling or downhill skiing or even cross-country skiing, and uh, in most areas nowadays, it's that's hard to come by anymore, at least for long stretches, but... Um, so the dog sledding, even if it's just a couple inches of white stuff on the ground, it's, they're good to go, and the dogs aren't discriminating. They're not concerned about having deep powder, and the dog sledding is just as fun in a marginal winter as it is in a deep snow winter. So as we're finding here in Northern Minnesota, of the various options for winter tourism, the one that seems to be most resilient with the changing world of winter is dog sledding.
1: So I, you mentioned earlier Wintergreen Lodge. Uh, some people opt to not do the the snow camping but to come and do the dog sledding and stay in the lodge then
0: yeah that's right we actually have a network of lodges we have our own and then a few others that are that um, join our trail network we've got about 60 miles of dog sledding trail right outside the door here so of the 500 folks who join us each winter from around the world, um, probably close to half are opting to go for the gusto and, and, and join us for a Dockside camping trip where they'll spend the first and the last nights here at our lodge, but they'll spend three, four, three or four days um, in between our Dockside camping experience. And the other half of our guests are here for lots of the Lodge, Lodge to the Lodge where they'll be based in one or more lodges for a three or four or five night um, itinerary. Um, where they're off-setting a different variety of trails and different scenery and different experiences every day. And then we have a wonderful French chef on staff that puts together fine fare for the meals each night. And um, so it's pretty luxurious, uh, even a few chocolates on the pillow now and then. But so we really put the polish on those trips. Um, and uh, they, uh, as it turns out, quite a few of the folks that come with us on a lodge, lodge vacation. We, we have a large percentage of returning guests each year. They get to know their dog team, and they're pretty particular about wanting their same dogs back each winter. But often they'll start on a lodge lodge trip, and then they'll up the ante and come back the next year to try a camping trip. And then eventually head to the Arctic with us, as several folks are going to be doing this next week, a uh, trip up in the Svalbard Islands, north of Norway. It's another wintergreen trip. Uh, it's kind of our, our high-end, high-Arctic trip. And um, so there's eight folks who started here on a lodge-based trip and uh, now are headed Headed to Daxa with us up uh, just a 200 miles from the North Pole.
1: Wow, that's a uh, that's neat. You have a great progression there that people can sample and then get more involved and then get more dedicated and then dive in full bore into the sport.
0: Yeah, yeah, it becomes a lifetime recreational holiday for a lot of folks once they. Well, the winter is so lovely and beautiful, and then we can combine it with the um, the intrigue of the dogs, you know, and then sort of the one two punch. For ensuring that uh, people get addicted to it pretty quick.
1: You know, my only experience with dog sledding was uh, in Alaska and uh, got to take a short ride with a team, and they loved it. And the, oh, yeah. you could feel the joy of the dogs. And, you know, it was, it was one of those experiences I'll never forget. I, I fell in um, love with the dogs within about 10 minutes, you know, and oh, yeah. all, it, it's just a, a fascinating experience to, to work with a team of dogs that are so excited about, yeah. you know, pulling the sled and being with the, the humans that are there for the fun. It it was a, a beautiful experience for me.
0: Yeah, I know. That's the intrigue of the dogs is, of course, dogs are amazing animals, and they seem to be just hardwired to want to serve people, And, and um, <clears throat> but you never see that more pronounced than you do with dog hunting, as you experience their courage in Alaska. Uh, these sled dogs uh, they are all about being put in harness and pulling those sleds. in fact, when we're hitting hitting the trail in the morning if there's a dog that's misbehaved the uh, the um most significant uh, setback you can meet out their disobedient dog is to simply leave behind for the day if they whine and howl and chop on their the kennel's anxious to join the crew if they're heading heading out and uh, uh, but it's uh, it's an amazing instinct to see how powerful it is uh, in those dogs that desire to pull and, and to please people and to put it all together on a dog sledding, on the dog sledding trail.
1: So, if someone wanted to try dog sledding, um, what kind of gear and experience do they need before they could come to your lodge and sample it?
0: Well, all you need to bring is the right attitude and, and adventurous spirit and and uh, and uh, anxious for fun because the rest of it comes with the, with the territory here. Most of our guests each winter, at least most of the uh, new guests, um, have, have never been dog before, before. Virtually all of them have never been dog before, and, and a, a significant uh, percentage of them have never seen snow before. So we do it all. It's a package deal. We provide the gear, the boots, the clothing, um, obviously the guides and the meals, and the lodging, Uh, so it's kind of plug and play. People arrive here. We put a pretty good packet of intro material out in advance and people get a fix on uh, uh, how how the system works here with the kind of clothing we we recommend they have and the clothing that's available on loan here at Wintergreen, Warm Winter, Sorel type pack boots, and then uh, layered um, anorak parka systems, and obviously mitts and hats and socks of appropriate uh, uh, service, and then... um, um, but otherwise, it, uh, they just need to uh, come ready for fun, and um, it uh, it doesn't, again, require any particular level of uh, hardcore fitness. It doesn't require any uh, particular strength, um, and uh, I think a big part of the fun for my staff is that each week here at Wintergreen, we have such a wonderful variety of folks, again, folks from all over the world, plus people of all ages. We've got grandpas and grandkids, and we've got... Um, uh, folks that join us, there's single travelers and com- people that come as a family, uh, and throughout the winter as well, we'll have contract courses with college cr- groups and school kids, and um, so every week it's something different. Some some weeks we have an added focus where we'll be out dog sitting, but we'll bring along a published National Geographic photographer to help people tune up their shutterbug skills while they're on the trail because of a, obviously it's a very photogenic experience. So we'll add a little extra. Uh, connection there by serving up the dog setting as a photography skills workshop. We do the same with a writer's workshop. Um, so it's quite the variety pack. and We found various, uh, many variations on the dog setting theme that helps in, uh, ensure that uh, those that enjoy the experience here are, are, uh, have added incentive to come back each year and, and add another little twist to the dog setting. But um, anybody can do it.
1: Nice. Well, Paul, I'm going to have to try that. You know, I, I've i long dreamed of doing more of it ever since, getting a taste of it in Alaska, so that sounds really, really fun. Um, tell us a story about a time that things didn't go right, Paul, and what you had to do to manage, and what lessons were learned from that.
0: Yeah, well, one early winter here, uh, I fired up a uh, sizable team of dogs to go out and gather firewood from the forest, and... Um, Sitting a little cavalier, I uh, was rocketing down the trail with a very powerful team of dogs and an empty sled. Uh, I fully anticipating coming home with a ton of firewood loading that thing down, but on the way out, it was a rocket ship ride through the woods. And uh, I was being a little too brazen because I was actually just hanging out to the back of the sled with my skis on and just sort of skidiering along with the dog team. It was just sort of a tenuous control on the sled and the brake a little difficult to do that when you're wearing skis, but it was a lot of fun and I was enjoying it until until my ski caught a, um, uh, in a little corner on the trail and, and I got spun around and and uh, knocked off a sled and, and I went tumbling into the woods and the dog team rocketed on. Of course, the dogs now were on a full board frolic uh, and uh, had no reason or incentive uh, to stop which threw me into a full war panic because as it was, it was late in the day and it was quite cold out and I was dressed in just um, some thin shell layers expecting I'd stay warm by skiing. Um, but now I had no idea or rhyme or reason to how all those dogs would go or whether I could ever catch up with them. So I gathered myself together and rocketed off on my skis in hopes, hoping upon hope that I could overtake them. But uh, they had, they were taking a pace, a pretty good clip, and... Um, and my uh, worst fear was the fact that this particular trail dumped into a massive wilderness lake. The lake is 35 miles long and extends right up into Ontario, Canada. So once the dogs hit the shores of that lake, all bets were off, whether I'd ever see them again. Uh, so with dusk rapidly encroaching, I was, had adrenaline pumping and full-bar panic skiing behind them. And, uh, but then uh, finally, with just a whisper of daylight, left I hit the shores of this huge lake. Uh, and almost in tears then because uh, darkness was settling over and the wind was blowing and their tracks were being obliterated by the blowing snow and looked doubtful I'd ever, ever find them out there. So I stood there on the shore of that lake wondering what to do next as uh, the cold was starting to seep in and overtake me as well. And then, just out of the corner of my eye, I caught a little a little odd spot out miles out in the bay yeah, it's a little dark it occurred to me it was not an area I was aware that there were any islands or any other reason for something
2: to uh,
0: catch my eye out there. So I thought I'd play that hunch and follow out there to see what that could be. So i skied, ski, ski, out there in the growing darkness and the blowing snow and got miles out of the lake, and then this amazing scene unfolded because as I approached that spot, sure enough, there they were, my sled dogs all sitting on their haunches, um, circled around a hole in the ice where there was an old-timer, Sitting on his white bucket, jigging a line through the ice, fishing, and but a curious yeah. thing happened. Of course, I was I was absolutely overwhelmed with relief, and I came skiing up upon this uh, this fellow, uh, sitting skis, uh, fishing out there in the silence and the blowing wind, um, and uh, he was facing away from me, so he never even uh, looked up to realize who was approaching him. But he, I'm sure he could hear the shushing of my skis as I came frantically skiing up to him to regroup my dogs. Um, and as I approached him, he said, just loud enough so I could hear, he said, all I want to know is who's going to pay for my crappies. And as it happened, of course, the dogs had come racing across that bay and that frolic caught wind of all his frozen crappies laying in there on the ice around his hole (laughs) and came racing up behind him, caught him unaware, vacuumed up all his frozen fish and then sat there waiting for more. Uh, So, uh... This uh, old old timer clearly had a pretty of humor, and of course, we had a good laugh. When uh, and uh, with night settling in, he he, I uh, meant when me enjoying my relief at re- retrieving my dogs, he uh, took me up on my offer to give him a ride home on the dog set. So we went back to his little cabin, had a nice cup of tea, and and uh, laughed about our experience together.
1: What a great story! <laughs> wow, you know, had that fisherman not been there. It could have had a totally different outcome.
0: No, oh, it could have been totally different. The dogs would have kept going. They would have gone uh, 17, 18 miles, right, probably all the way into Canada, and that would have been the end of the line. I don't think I would have had a chance of ever seeing them again.
1: So what would you have done to get through the night or, or survive the ordeal oh, no without your team?
0: Yeah, with no equipment, no gear. I mean, it was a foolish maneuver on my part. I'd made a huge mistake to take off in the evening without even a lighter or a headlamp on me. I'll never make that mistake again. Every time I leave the door here, I've got a lighter and a headlamp in my pocket in case things go go wrong. Um, of course, nowadays I carry my cell phone too in case things go really wrong, but but I was completely unprepared. Um, and uh, of course, in, that night, I, I probably could have made it back to my base camp, um, although I'm sure I, I, I might also have succumbed to hypothermia before I got there because I had uh, broke into a, I made the huge, the uh, big mistake in winter travel is I had let go of a uh, bear judgment and, and broke into a pouring, drenching sweat. So my clothing systems were soaked through by the time I got to tours of that lake. And it didn't take long at all in the cold wind for to freeze up and start to descend into the darkness of hypothermia. But, so I had to keep moving. Unfortunately, <clears throat> his cabin, his little ice fishing cabin wasn't too far, so we got in there and got the soap going in time to get me back on track. But, yes, it could have had a very different outcome for both me and the dogs.
1: Wow. That's that's amazing, amazing story. It seems like those are the sorts of experiences, though, that teach us the most.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I say, I think of that experience every time when I grab my shell jacket, hit on the woods, and I think about what I need to have on my person in case it doesn't go quite as planned.
1: So, Paul, do you have any special projects in the works right now? Um, any books or events coming up you'd like to tell the listeners about?
0: yeah I've authored a couple of books about our adventures over the years, and one of them uh is uh, going back into print right now with an update um it's called north to the Pole uh and it's a book that uh, will Steger and I wrote about our um uh, expedition way back in nineteen eighty six which was the first confirmed expedition to reach the North Pole without resupply labeled a landmark in polarization by national geographic um Times books had printed our um first edition of North to the Pole and It uh, became a bestseller, and it went on to travel around the world in many different languages and many different editions. Um, Now it's being updated and going back into print. Uh, There were eight members on that expedition team, including Will and myself, and all of them went on to become exemplars in their fields of uh, adventure and polar travel. Um, So we've updated the book with chapters on what our various colleagues have been up to in the years since and all the amazing projects they've been engaged in. Um, so North of the Pole will be out here soon in hardcover, published by um, the Minnesota Historical Society Press, and um, will be available through various online booksellers this summer.
1: Oh, that's fun. I'm going to have to grab a copy of that. So the, yeah. the original story was about the expedition to the North Pole.
0: Yeah, correct. It was actually considered one of the top adventure books of uh, um, by National Geographic one of the top 100 of all time. Uh, so it was very well received. The, we were adding some epilogue chapters that uh, talk about what's become of the world of polar adventuring since then, uh, since 1986. All the changes have, been, uh, have come both to the natures of the polar regions with a, with a changing world and a changing climate and how that's impacted adventure and exploration up there as well as an update on, uh, again, what um, all of our team members have been involved with in their own expeditions and adventures um, as well over the decades. Uh, so that had uh, a wonderful set of photographs, regripping gripping photos of dogs sitting on the Arctic Ocean with temperatures that uh, approach 80 below zero. So mm-hmm. pretty epic place and a pretty epic adventure.
1: And say again when the book will be out?
0: That should be out uh, uh, early to mid-summer here this year
1: yet. Okay, well, hey, we will keep our eyes and ears open for that one, and when the book comes out, let us know, and we'll tell the listeners, hey, it's here, so that they can grab a copy. Oh, that's great. Do you have any discounts or special promotions for our listeners?
0: Yeah, we'd be happy to extend our $100 off sign-up discount for uh, New Adventures with Wintergreen. Um, so, for folks that might want to give dog sitting a go, you can simply get a hold of us through com or our 800 number, which is 877 sled fun, 877 sled fun. Let us know you heard about us on the Adventure Sports Podcast, and we'll knock $100 off the package price for any of our dog sled vacation packages or our dog sled, uh camping adventures next winter, the winter of uh, 2015-16, we'd be happy to have you join us with that um, extra discount.
1: Well, thank you for that very much. We will make sure that that information is in the show notes so that listeners can go there and and get the links to your site and and also that 1-800 number. How do you feel that your organization is benefiting society or individuals?
0: one of the beautiful things here we live in a very small town where tourism is a way of life for many people in our community but the winters are often a long stretch of of uh, tough sledding for many of the businesses that await the summer tourism season so uh, we feel fortunate in that through what we do and we're exclusively a winter based business we're able to keep the lights on from uh, the hotels and restaurants in our town with the several thousand folks that come up here every winter to go dog sledding with us or with the other dog sled tourism providers in town so That's one of the gratifying elements of living in a town as small as Ely. There's about 3,000 folks here, but small enough and remote enough that you can really be part of the community, that you you know that what you do to generate a livelihood for your own family uh, ripples through the entire town and and helps create an income for many of the people. We're also gratified, too, uh, being engaged with uh, various organizations around the country uh, that um, provide refuge for dogs. Some of the sled dogs here are retired dogs that come from other kennels, often from racing kennels, where they may not have much of an opportunity to be involved in their uh, pulling world after the, uh, after their racing years are over, but uh, since we're not trying to set any ground speed records here at Wintergreen, we're able to accommodate some retired racing dogs to become part of the Wintergreen kennel and still enjoy doing what they love to do to pull, but not having to do it at the intensity that's involved in a dog sled race. So um, we have a, um, a small element of the Wintergreen kennel as this refuge service for retired sled dogs that can still enjoy their service days as part of the Wintergreen team.
1: Hey, that's neat. You know, I also heard from two people I think you know. Lonnie Dupree and Steve Paragas both told me about a Bering Strait expedition that had to do with good relations between the U.S. and the USSR. What was that about?
0: Yeah, that was back in 1990, 1991, when Lonnie, my colleague, and I put together a project, um, again, back in the era of the Cold War, when, as it happened, um, uh, our two countries, the U.S. and then the Soviet Union, had a curious connection because um, most folks may not be aware that Russia, and, or the Soviet Union, are the uh, country's nearest overseas neighbor. Just 50 miles separates us from that side of the world there in the Bering Strait. But that 50 miles has technically served as what was called as the Iron Curtain for the, the decades of most of the last century were um, much like the iron, the um, the, uh, the ice curtain. Whereas the ice, the iron curtain over in East and West Berlin, separated Germany, two sides of Germany. The ice curtain, as it was called in the Bering Strait, separated the two sides of the Arctic, um, because the Inuit people on both sides of that imaginary line that runs down the center of the Bering Strait shared similar cultural, uh, same um, languages, um, and uh, shared blood relations. But all through the era of the Cold War, uh, they were um, physically separated from each other. Uh, Guards were posted at the the U.S. Soviet border, preventing any contact or communication between the native communities that call that part of the world home. Uh, And it took a tremendous toll on the cultural well-being of the Inuit families that lived up there. So in 1990, we thought we'd take a crack at that odd little anomaly in the Arctic and try to bring the cultures back together again. and we arranged permission from the Soviet government through the Kremlin to gain access to eastern Siberia
2: and then put together a
0: team that included Inuit or native people from both sides of the border that traveled by dog sled to reconnect the cultures and continents that had once shared this close connection that was severed all during the decades of the Cold War. And it was an extraordinary, gratifying experience. We were a few months on the trail with this very eclectic, team of 12 folks speaking various languages and Inuit dialects, but representing cultures and communities from both sides of the border, from the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and then all along the way visiting these communities, both in Siberia and then later, um, as we crossed the Bering Strait on into Alaska, visiting these communities um, who had who were well aware that they had close blood relations, aunts and uncles and cousins and kin just across the 50 miles of ocean that separated them, but with whom they had been denied any chance to have had contact. Um, But that all changed. In the wake of our trek, it was called the Bering Bridge Expedition. Um, We were granted granted meetings with uh, President Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, and what spun out of that uh, six months later was a treaty that opened the U.S.-Soviet border in the Bering Strait and uh, um, blew that wide open, much like... When the Iron Curtain came down between East and West Berlin, that was all blind, blown wide open, and a similar thing happened up there in the Arctic as well. And, and we were um, very, Lonnie Dupree and I were very gratified to have been part of that process.
1: Wow, that is a really neat story. Is there a way that listeners could learn more about that epic humanitarian adventure?
0: My, the other book I authored is called Sawing the Ice Curtain, Sawing the Ice Curtain, the Bering Bridge Expedition. Um, and that's uh, not currently in print, but I know it's available readily through um, eBay and I think uh, through Amazon as well. Um, so uh, the Bering Bridge Expedition was the um, book we put together about that uh, trek in 1990 that found dog dock setting from Siberia to Alaska.
1: Well, hey, Paul, I can't let you go without asking you about the effort to protect the Boundary Waters. Steve Paragas mentioned this to us in an early episode and. I'd like to hear your take on that.
0: Thanks to a threshold piece of federal legislation uh, put in place some 50 years ago in 1964, uh, the United States has 680 protected wilderness areas for um, the unique ecological and recreational value that have been set aside in almost every state in the Union to forever, in perpetuity, be places of natural sights and natural sounds Amazingly, of those 680, the most popular, the most beloved, the most heavily visited of the bunch is right outside my door here. It's, uh, it's this amazing uh, area, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area of uh, Minnesota, right here on the Canadian border, which its Canadian counterpart, an equally beautiful expanse of protected wilderness called Quetico in Ontario, uh, has... Uh, some 2 million acres and 2,000 lakes, most of all of which are still clean enough you can dip your cup from and drink out of. It's also also one of the only places in North America where the entire uh, ecosystem, the entire web of life is still fully intact from, from the king of the jungle, the timber wolf, all the way down to the smallest critter, the smallest little fur-bearing critter in the forest, a cute little thing called the redback vole. But all the parts and pieces of the ecosystem are fully intact and fully functioning in very few places on the planet, but that's still happening as well. So we got this precious place here. Uh, and it, it's been here for over 100 years now, starting way back in the turn of the last century from Theodore Roosevelt, our most adventurous and most conservation minded president, foresaw the unique qualities of this region and signed the initial legislation that ensured that the wheels were in motion for this increasing Protections to be placed upon this region in the century that followed. So here we have today, and it hosts this area hosts a quarter million people each year that uh, recognizes its unique qualities and flock here from all over the planet to enjoy it by canoe and hiking in the summer, and then of course dogsleds and skis in the winter. So we have a century of protection and a quarter million uh, constituents and all love the place, and, and now suddenly we're a nightmare. Uh, various threats have encroached upon this place in the last century, but the biggest of the bunch is staring us down right now because it, it's uh, settled into the, it's a, uh, the uh, most toxic industry um, in the country. It's uh, recognized by the Environmental Protection Service as the most polluting of the industrial activities. It's sulfide mining. It's the process of extracting copper and nickel, from a, a toxic strata of rock in the Earth's crust um, that, when exposed to air and oxygen, this particular rock, that begins to percolate sulfuric acid that
2: makes
0: its way into the ecosystem and can wreak havoc and, and render uh, the entire watershed a biological dead zone, a, as it has done for the world each and every place on the planet where they've attempted sulfide mining and they've been attempting it for over a thousand years now. It dates all the way back to the Roman era. Everywhere it's been done, uh, it has uh, damaged ecosystems and in many places destroyed watersheds. And and now, sadly, um, horrifically, you know, they're proposing to do it right up against one of the most water-intense places um, in, in, our, in our continent, the Boundary Waters here, and all these thousands of lakes. So, you know, uh, does it seem appropriate uh, for the nation's most polluting and toxic industry to be allowed to operate right up, right up against the nation's most beloved and wilderness it, uh, it, it's just such a, a, a daunting prospect that sort of leaves our heads reeling here and so we're mounting an effort best we can uh, to uh, put out the alarm and, and, and try to engage um, other folks who are fond of beautiful, uh, natural places and, and uh, lovely recreational landscapes like this canoe country to uh, see what we can do to put a stop to this specter of, uh, of sulfide mining taking place in the uh, Boundary Waters.
1: Well, Paul, what can people do? How how can they get involved?
0: Well, fortunately, we we do have to, you know one one stop shop. We uh, we have a website, uh, SaveTheBoundaryWaters.org, save dot org, dot org and the parts and pieces are all there for people to become engaged uh, from uh, something as simple as signing our petition as we're taking our story to the White House. This week, uh, federal legislation is being introduced to establish a mining exclusion zone around the Boundary Waters watershed, and so we're hoping with the support of the White House um, that uh, that uh, may in fact get put in place, Um, and so we all have an opportunity to lend our support to that uh, with actions as simple as signing the petition, lending your own voice in favor of, um, of such protection for the area. And, um, you can find that uh, again at our website, savetheboundarywaters.org. And there as well, suggestions of additional support that anyone can lend to this cause by writing the key, uh, congressional leaders, uh, engaged in this issue and, and, names and addresses of course are included there. Um, as well as opportunities as well. To lend support to an advocacy workshop here in Minnesota that's uh, trying to tackle this issue through financial contributions or or other avenues to help our organization um, do its uh, job and do it quickly to catch us while we can before um, the uh, process gets, gets too far beyond us.
1: Well, Paul, it sounds like a very worthwhile effort. I'm glad to hear that people have championed that cause. Um, we need to protect our natural areas, definitely. I, it's necessary that you know we have mining, we have agriculture, we have industry, but we don't have to have them in the same natural areas that we should most want to protect.
0: Well, that's right. Yeah. Um, the world has a lot of copper. That's the good news. The U.S. Geological Survey uh, projects that there is enough copper... T- mined in safer places around the planet to sustain the world's needs for hundreds of thousands of years so the issue is not that we need to have this copper this is arguably the worst place on the planet extracting copper through the process of sulfide mining so plenty of other places uh, far more appropriate with far fewer dangers to extract what we need to ensure that uh, uh, we have the, the the metals that service our technology and and uh, But um, we also need to have beautiful places of respite, like the body Waters. And um, so it's a matter of balancing that here. Um, It seems like a no-brainer to most of us that that places like this should be set aside in perpetuity with recreational and ecological resources and and not subjected to the threat of industries that are considered um, among the most polluting and and toxic on the planet.
1: Well, good for you guys. Well, Paul, hey, thank you very much for your time today. The information that you shared with us about dog sledding and Arctic expeditions and about the efforts to save the Boundary Waters. Wow, we really appreciate it. Would you like to be a guest on a future show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click the Contact Us button.